Turn your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. This study through the book of Joshua has been an exciting one to see how God works through His people. Sometimes He does it in spectacular ways. He uses miracles. We saw that when they crossed over the Jordan River. When God stopped the river from flowing. We saw God's miracle when He brought down the walls of Jericho. Not because they were all marching in unison and jumping up and down to make the walls fall. He did it based on His own power. But you know, sometimes God empowers His people and has them do His works through ordinary means. And this is where we find ourselves in life often, don't we? We don't see God working in miracles these days. We don't see God uh, bringing down walls. We don't see God um, helping us to cross over rivers. Uh, by stopping the river from flowing. We see God working in ordinary ways. But the, I think the point that we need to see when, we, when God works in that way is that God is still in it. That God is in control of everything and that whether He works through miraculous or ordinary means, the point is still the same. We need to obey God's instructions. Certainly, the people of Israel needed to obey God when when. Uh, the, the walls of Jericho came down. But today we'll see that they also need to, to obey Him just through these simple, ordinary means in battle. In Joshua chapter 8, we, we will see that God's method of bringing success may come through ordinary human means. We'll begin reading in verses 1 and 2 with God's plan in victory. We see that God gives them a plan for their victory. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So God gives them a plan for His victory. And the first thing that He tells them is that they need to trust in His promises. You need to trust in My promises, God says. He says, do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people with you. And then He says, see, I have given it into your hand. And then verse 2, He says, you shall do to I and its king just as you did to Jericho. He's giving them a promise that yes, you will defeat I. Now, Israel's in a precarious situation here because they had just tried to go up and attack this small city. The city of Ai was, as we'll see later, 12, 000, a city of 12,000 people. So their military men were probably only about 3,000, a small city. But they were probably fortified in some way. And although uh, they were uh, in that location, Joshua sent only 3,000 men to fight against these men of Ai. And what happened was because of their sin, as we saw last week and the week before, because of the sin that Israel had in their camp, they came back defeated. In fact, the, the entire battalion of 3,000 men were, were sent back to Israel, 36 of whom died in battle. And it was not until they eliminated their sin that God would give them their victory. 
And so we saw over the last two weeks that they that God showed them that there was sin within their camp, and Israel uh, confessed their sin, and they found out who the culprit was. They found out that it was Achan who was hiding um, these these stolen goods in his tent. So now that that's over, God says, "Look, now go back up to the city, and this time you're going to win." Now. If they did not trust in the promises of God, it would be very easy for them to say, I don't know, God. Are you with us in this? Because what they recognized before was that no matter how small the battle was, they could not win without God being on their side. It doesn't matter how many people they had. It doesn't matter what kind of strategy they used. They had to have God on their side. And so now the question that may have popped up in their heads during this time would be, is God on our side? Or is there something that we are doing that's it's going to keep God from, from uh, helping us win this battle? So that's why God begins, or yeah, God begins in verse 1 by telling Joshua, don't be afraid. Take courage. This is similar to what he had told to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, do not fear, do not be dismayed. I am with you. All you have to do is obey me. It's that simple. You want victory? Obey me. Eliminate the sin from your lives and follow my commands, however foolish they may seem to you, because I am in control, God is saying. And so although Israel may have been afraid, they should have trusted in the promises of God and recognized that He had to be with them. Have you ever in your life experienced such deep remorse about your sin that you felt dirty and and defiled and even discouraged and you and you wanted God to, to cry out to you and say get up you're okay I've forgiven you but we're waiting for this this command from God don't don't be afraid continue on in your Christian life and we don't get it all we hear is silence God does not speak to us in audible voices anymore. In, in our era, God does, not, God does not use miraculous means to get our attention. He uses providential means. He uses the ordinary things in our lives to get our attention. And when, when we are so discouraged because of our sin, God wants us to get up, stop fearing, and continue on with our Christian life. And that is why it's so important to have the Word of God central to our lives. Because in it, we'll find verses like Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, which says, I am with you always, Jesus says. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Where is it that we get our courage to continue on in the Christian life when we are so beaten down by sin and so discouraged? We don't get it from an audible voice from God, do we? We get it from His Word. And that is why we need to make it central in our lives. We need to read through the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God. We need to have the Word of God taught to us. We need to memorize the Word of God. Because Satan wants us to keep wallowing in our despair and say, oh God, please don't punish me. I'm not, I'm not going to continue on in my life 
until this, this problem goes away. But God is saying, get up. Continue on. I will give you the victory. And that is where these uh, people of Israel find themselves. They had just done something very significantly wrong against God. They had sinned against Him. And as a result, they were defeated in battle, in this battle of Ai. And, and now they, were, they could have been fearful, but God was saying, don't be afraid. I am with you. I will give you the victory. He says that several times. In verse 1, he says, I have given it into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And then he promises them in verse 2 that they will take this city just like they took Jericho. And look down at verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. This is a promise of God that, that can be uh, counted upon, that can be tried and true, and will be found out to be true. And so Israel should not have been afraid because God had promised us them the victory. And the same thing is true for us. When we have these, these issues of sin that come into our lives and we have these areas and we feel like um, God is so far away, we need to trust in the promises of God. That God is with us. That God will never leave us or forsake us for those who are believers, certainly. So we need to trust in God's promises. The second thing is that we need to follow God's method. The method that He gave to the people of Israel was this. It's the very end of verse 2. It says, set an ambush for the city behind it. We need to follow God's method. Sometimes we're looking for these miraculous ways that God worked. Well, why don't you just wipe them out, God? Just destroy the whole city and we'll just stay back here at the camp. But sometimes God defeats enemies through ordinary human means. A simple battle strategy of ambush. And we'll see that take place in this passage. But not only should we trust in God's promises and follow God's method, we should also do it in God's time. In verse 18, the Lord says to Joshua, stretch out the javelin and uh, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I. So, so the Lord gives him the command of when to do it. When to to spring the trap. What would have happened if Joshua would have stretched out his javelin toward I before it was time? Or before God had told him? Well, the Scriptures don't tell us, but it's likely that, that God may not have been with Israel in that situation. So we need to follow God's method and do it in God's timing. So in verses 3-29, through 29, we, we come across uh, the battle here in our passage. Verses 3-9, through the ambush is prepared. Let's, let's read that passage there. Verse 3 says, So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. He commanded them, saying, See, you are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out to meet us at the first, we will flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, They are fleeing before us as at the first. So we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. 
See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. So the ambush is set. The 30,000 men, by the way, there are 40,000 men in this troop. Turn back to chapter 4, and I'll show you that. The 40,000 men of war crossed over the Jordan River along with their families. Verse 12 of chapter 4 says this, The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. So we have 40,000 men that are prepared for battle. And we have these people camping in Gilgal with their families. And Joshua takes 30,000 of these men and he sets them up on one side of the city and they were supposed to, to uh, get over to that side of the city by night. They were going to hide out there. And then what Joshua does in verses 5 and 6 is he sets an ambush. He says, Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city and when they come out to meet us, we will flee before them. So he sets this ambush. Basically, the 30,000 men are the ambush uh, trap, the trap that was set. And he would take basically 5,000 men to the front of the city just as they had done before. However, the first time they went up to attack the city of Ai, and the, uh, they took 3,000 men. And remember what happened was that I had defeated them, and so Israel retreated. And so Joshua was going to do the same thing. He was going to take 5,000 men, and then this time he was going to pretend like they were being defeated, and that's when this, the trap would be strung, sprung that 30,000 men would come after them. Now he also does, in verse, what he also does is he sets another group of 5,000 men over between the cities of Bethel and Ai. It says, so, verse 9, says, So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side. So he has three groups. The big group of 30,000 men in ambush. He has one group that is going to the front of the city, 5,000 men, and then another group between Bethel and Ai. The reason he puts this group between those two cities is so that Bethel, who is living in the land of Canaan would not help out in this, in this victory in trying to defeat Israel. So these 5,000 men were, were there to protect Israel from de being defeated from or being attacked by Bethel. And so Joshua gives them these instructions and Israel would have to attack them on their home turf um, not knowing uh, what would happen. Now the, the difference is is what happens if they just took all 40,000 men and said, you know what, God, that's a good idea, but why don't we just take 40,000? We'll just overcome them right in the city. We'll just take all 40,000 and just, just uh, attack them, and they're not going to be able to stop us. Well, first of all, God didn't tell them to do that. But secondly, they didn't know who was hanging around the quarter, corner inside the city or what kind of traps were set inside the city, right? And so if they had 40,000 men going in, they could have lost thousands of men to these types of traps or someone who is lying in wait. And so God said this was the best way to do it. Just set up this ambush and you will have the victory. So they set up the ambush in verse, verses 10 through 17. Let's begin reading in verse 10. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and he went up with the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. 
Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai, and he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, and its rear guard on the west side of the city. And Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. It came about when the king of Ai saw it that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle, he and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were, who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone, gone out after Israel. And they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. So now we have the decoy employed. Joshua takes his 5,000 men to the north side of the city and then he sets this other 5,000 men on the west side of the city. And I want you to notice in verse 10 that what Joshua does here. It says, Now Joshua rose up early in the morning. And I want to take a planned rabbit trail to talk about Joshua's early rising because this is not the first time that he does it. Look back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 1. This is before they were about to cross the Jordan. It says that Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. Look at chapter 6 and verse 12. This is the battle of Jericho. And on each day before they walked around the city, we find in verse 12, Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And then we find in verse 15 that on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So on the seventh day he rose at the dawning of the morning, even earlier. And then in chapter 7, verse 14, when it was time to punish Achan, it says that in the morning you shall come near tribe by tribe, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come near man by man. Now, I'm just waiting for the text to tell us that Joshua slept in one day. Don't you like sleeping in? It's, 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 uh, it's enjoyable. But we don't find that. Joshua is a man of diligence. And the point of rising early is not that you know, it's biblical to get up at a certain time of the day. The point is that you have to be diligent in your work. And that is the point. That, that You know times like this in your life when you wanted to get something done that was very important. What did you do? You got up as early as you could so you made sure that that project was finished or that, that trip that you were taking was started. You know that feeling that you have, don't you, when... You know you have something important to do, and yet you sleep in, and what happens? Does that project end up getting done when you get up at 11 o'clock in the morning? Not usually. And so the point is not the certain time that we get up in the morning. The point is that we are diligent in what we are called to do. And that is the, the nice part about this, this man, Joshua, this leader, is that he rose up early in the morning to make sure that, that what he had to, 
to uh, do was done. Otherwise, it may have not have been do- gotten done, or they may have been fighting too too far into the day, maybe when it's dark, and then obviously it makes things a lot more difficult. So if we avoid those things which are important because we are lazy or because we sleep in, then uh, those things will not get done. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13, Solomon says, Do not love sleep or you will become poor. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, so shall your poverty come. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we have the example of Jesus Christ rising early in the morning while it was still dark so that he could pray. The point is is that that um, we need to be diligent in what God has called us to do. What is it that God has called you to do? Do you have a, a responsibility that God has called you to, to take part in? Do you need to be praying each day? Do you need to be spending time in the Word of God? Well, then you should be getting up early in the morning to do that so that the, the, the uh, things that pop up in the day, you know how, how it happens. When we, the later we get up, the more things that seem to, to come into our schedule and that clouds what we are supposed to do. And so we can uh, learn from Joshua's example that it's good to be up early in the morning doing what we should do. So uh, Joshua pretends to be beaten. He, he takes his group of 5,000 men and, and they go before the city of Ai. And you, you have to imagine being this, this, uh, this enemy, what they were thinking. Because remember, Israel had come up before with 3,000 men and Ai had chased them away and defeated three, 36 of their men. Now they come up with 5,000 men and they think, wow, they're running away again. Let's go after them. Let's, let's take them all out this time. And so they leave the city and then we find in verses 18 through 23 that the ambush is executed. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, and they had no place to flee, this way or that, for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. So it was the Lord who gave Joshua this command to attack. And what they did is they went up to the, to the city. Joshua started to flee when all of the city of Ai came out. Now, when I say all of the city, I'm speaking of the warriors. I don't think the women and children would come out with them into battle. So they would, all the men who were in battle would come out into the city, away from the city. And now this, this ambush... Would, would take place. The 30,000 men would come from basically out of nowhere. And I was trapped now. They had 30,000 men on one side, they had 5,000 on another, and then 5,000 on another side. 
and there was nowhere that they could turn. And they didn't realize it really until they turned around and they saw their city inflamed. They saw that they, they had nowhere to turn and that they were in trouble. They were defenseless. And so we find that Israel attacks the men of Ai and they kill every single one of them just as God had commanded. Remember, God told them that everyone who lived in Canaan must be destroyed. They have to be destroyed because they were living in sin in complete opposition to God. For us, we do not have a command to destroy everyone who is in opposition to God. Instead, we have a command to give them the gospel and allow God to do His work in their lives. So, so God commanded them to, to uh, destroy these men, and then we find the result of the ambush in verses 24 through 29. Verse 24 says, Now when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed, then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, which he stretched out the javelin, until he had utterly destroyed the inhabitants of Ai. For Joshua, uh, Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stone that stands to this day. So the reason I say that the women and children probably stayed back in the city is because this verse 24. It says that after they had finished pursuing them, at the end of the verse it says, that all of Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So there are still people left in the city. And Israel's command was to go and destroy the remainder of these cities, these people. And the reason for that was not because that they were uh, some sort of a, 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 um, they were not going to attack them in any way. They were not an enemy in the sense that they were afraid of what these women and children were going to do to them. But the point was is that they were against God and if, if Israel began intermarrying with these people, they would adopt those same types of pagan practices. And God didn't want that. And so He said, I want you to destroy the, the entire land of Canaan. This is the land that I have promised to you and you will receive it. In verse 27 we find that Israel took the cattle and the spoil as plunder, notice, for themselves. This is different from what happened at, at Jericho. Remember, God said everything in the city must be destroyed except for the treasure. And that treasure ought to be kept and put into my treasury. And God is basically saying that, listen, I am giving you this land of Israel, but I want you to give me the first fruits of what you've been given. I want you to give me the first part of this land. And so he, he, he asks them, he commands them to give that money to the treasury, to the church, to the, um, the church, not the church at that time, to the tabernacle. But at this time, we get to the battle of Ai, and he says that you can now take this cattle and this spoil for yourselves. 
Isn't it amazing that Achan, if he would have known, if he only would have waited a little bit longer and gotten the spoil here at the Battle of Ai rather than taking it from Jericho where God said not to, he would have still been living. But instead he chose to disobey God and he was short-sighted in his focus. He thought, you know what, God can't really take care of me, so I'll take care of myself. So he pulls in this uh, gold and silver and this special robe and he ends up being destroyed along with his family. So the city of Ai is now destroyed. Both the fighting men out in the wilderness and the, the families that were left back in the city. Now we find that the king is now killed in verse 29. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate. Now, this was probably not the method of killing the king of Ai. This was probably just meant for, for display. They would take, remember when David killed Goliath, he cut off the head of Goliath and he carried it around the city. Why? Well, Goliath was a man who was defiant against God and against Israel. And David displayed that head showing that, hey, God is in control. Look what God can do when he, when he uh, wins the battle for us. And so I think the same thing is true here. They probably killed the king of Ai first and then put him on display. And we'll see this later when we get to chapter 10, that, that often when these five kings who go up against Israel are killed, they're first killed and then they're hung up on a tree so that all of Israel can know that God is mighty, that God will win the battle. And even Canaan can recognize that we are in trouble because these strong, valiant kings are now destroyed. Not by any um, overpowering of military force, not by any supreme methods of strategy, but because God was with Israel. So Joshua had the king of Ai's body displayed for all of Canaan and all of Israel to see so that they could see that God was mighty. And then after that, we find in verse 29 that they set up a memorial. <clears throat> it says that uh, when they took the body down, they threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. This is the second heap of stones that was placed over dead bodies. Remember in chapter 7, like we looked at last week, after Achan and his whole family was destroyed, they put a heap of stones over it. And if you remember from before, the reason that these pile of stones are set up is so that Israel can remember what God had done here. That God hates sin in the case of Achan. And in this case, that God will win the battle. That no army, no power on this earth is too strong for God. God says, is there anything too difficult for me? And so he sets up this monument of stones so that Israel can look back on that and remember, oh yes, that was the city of Ai. When we went in to the city of Ai and we tried to defeat them on our own strength and we tried to defeat them even though we had sin in our camp, we lost. But you know, when God was on our side, as they look at that pile of stones, we were able to defeat that whole city, including the king. And that is what that pile of stones reminds me of. 
And not only that, it's not just for the, that current generation of Israel, but it's also for the future generations. So that, as we saw with the pile of stones at the Jordan River, Joshua says, so that when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Why are they here? You can tell them. Tell them that God is mighty. Tell them that God hates sin in the case of Achan. And tell them that God gives second chances in the case of the city of Ai, and he restores people to fellowship with him. So that is what the, uh, the purpose of that monument was. Verses 30 through 35 give us the final uh, part of this story, and that's where Joshua uh, sets up this altar in Shechem and worships God there. The worship of God and victory. Verse 30 says, Then Joshua built an altar, to the Lord, the God of Israel, and Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded, wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. So Joshua writes, it says, the book of the law in verse 31, it says, Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, he wrote the law of Moses on these stones, the stones of the altar. It says that they were supposed to be uncut stones. But I would, I would suggest to you that that's not the entire law of Moses. Okay, Think about how big the law of Moses is. The, we call the first five books of the Bible the books of the law or the Pentateuch. And that simply uh, refers to all of Moses' writings. Now, if you were to read, just read through the law of Moses, the five books, the first five books of the Bible, it would take about 14 hours. So I don't think that Moses was writing out the entire word-for-word -word, um, uh, record of the law of Moses on the, the altar. For one, that would have to be a huge altar. And the second reason is I think that the scriptures indicate that in verse 34. It says, Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. So notice at the end of verse 34 it says that he read, or the beginning, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse. This is basically Deuteronomy chapter 28. This would make a lot more sense. This would take about 10 or 15 minutes to read and probably, uh, who knows, half hour or whatever to, to write down in script, inscribe onto the stones. So 
Moses was basically showing them that, that God was most important here. That God was the one who gave them the victory. And he was doing it according to what Moses had commanded them. He said, listen, when you get into the land of Canaan, you need to set up this altar and sacrifice it, make sacrifices to God. We find that there's, in, at the end of verse 30, that there's, or 31, that they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and they sacrificed peace offerings. The burnt offerings just simply showed God that they were completely consecrated to Him. That God, as a nation, we stand before you and we have set ourselves apart to you as holy. They wanted to show that God was the one who gave them the victory. And then the peace offering simply indicated their reconciliation with God. That God, we understand that our sin is an offense to you and that we need to be reconciled to you. That we need to be uh, made to, to be righteous before you. And I think it's significant that Joshua brings the entire community of Israel, all the 40,000 men, fighting men, along with their wives and children. He brings them all to this altar at Shechem. And he reads the uh, scriptures to the people. And he makes a monument here showing that God is, that God is uh, vital in their victory. And this is the fifth monument that has been made in the, that has been set up in the book of Joshua. So Joshua reads, but I want you to notice what he read. Look at the end of verse, or I'm sorry, the, B, the beginning of verse 34. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, and then verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read. This was not something that he was simply skimming over. Hey, yeah, we'll just get the main points here. This is the, the things that I like. He was reading the entire law uncom uncommented on. He didn't go up there and say, listen, uh, this, is a, this is what the, the Word of God says, and now let me, let me show you uh, what it means. This was simply a reading of the Scriptures. And I think that's, that's a necessary thing that should be a part of our lives, that we recognize that God's Word on its own is authoritative in our lives. That God's Word speaks for itself and speaks for itself in many ways. And so we find that Joshua read all of the words of the law, specifically the blessings and the curse in Deuteronomy 28. And then I want you to notice who was there in verse 35. Who was there at the reading of the Scriptures? It says, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before whom? Before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. This was not something to be kept from, from uh, innocent ears or something that was way too far over their head. This was something that should be done in the reading of all of Israel. That the women and the children were involved in this. And not only that, strangers who were living in their land. Now who are these strangers? Can you think of one? Well, obviously we have from the record of Joshua, we have this lady Rahab, the prostitute the one who believed in God, and as a result, it was credited to her as righteousness. She ended up becoming a believer in Jesus Christ because she trusted in the promises of God, recognized that the God of Israel 
was the God of heaven and earth and was, was to be worshipped by her. And so Israel brought her now into their camp and they, she's still called a stranger because she is not a Jew by uh, nature or by ethnicity. As sinners, we are responsible to provide a sacrifice as a payment for our sins. Our sins, just like the sins of Israel, are an offense against a holy God. Sometimes we highlight God's love and we say, well, God is a loving God and He would never punish somebody because of their sin. But that is completely against what the Scriptures teach. God hates those who do righteous unrighteousness. And Romans chapter 3 says that, that there is none righteous, not even one. None of us are righteous. None of us can stand before God on our own merits, on our own works, and receive favor from God. Because, Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. None of us can stand up. None of us can meet His, his standard of righteousness because James 2.10 says that if we have committed one sin, we are guilty of all sins. And as a result, payment has to be made for our sins. We are lawbreakers. And our only hope is that we, like Joshua, have a sacrifice made for us. And for Joshua, it was these animals that were used as representations, as a representation of um, items or objects which would take away their sin. But it wasn't until Jesus Christ came that we had, we had our perfect sacrifice, where Jesus Christ came and now we could lay all of our sins on His shoulders. He took the payment for our sins. It was because of His obedience to the cross because he obeyed fully in his life that he could take our place on the cross. We deserve to, to die, not Christ. Christ did nothing deserving of death. We deserve to die in his place, but he died in our place. And as a result, he broke the power of the law. You see, the law demands that we obey it perfectly and fully, but we can't. And so when Jesus came, He broke the power of the law. We no longer have to um, obey all the commandments in order to be saved. The reason that we follow what the Scriptures teach is, is because we are saved, because we want to be pleasing to God, not in order to receive salvation, because it is not on the basis of works which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not of yourselves. It's not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. We have nothing to be proud of in salvation. We have nothing to boast about in salvation because we've done none of it. God doesn't look down on us with favor because of what we have done. He looks down on us with favor because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so we can't boast. And although Joshua was making a sacrifice for all the people of Israel, 
Um, we cannot make that decision for you. We can't make you become a child of God. Jesus Christ's sacrifice, like Joshua's, was sufficient for all people, and anyone who come to God in repentance and faith will be received by God. But we can't make that decision for you. If you need to trust Christ, it's, it's a responsibility that you have to take upon yourself. That you need to recognize your sinfulness before God. That God demands a payment for your sin. And that you must turn to Him in repentance and faith. Repentance simply means to turn away from your sin. Faith simply means to believe what God has said and to trust in it. This passage is about sacrifices. It's about uh, worshiping God. But, but the main point of this passage is that God accomplishes His purpose even through ordinary means. We may be looking for God to, to work in our lives in some spectacular way. Sometimes we think, God, where are you? Why can't you just drop down $1,000 into my bank account so I can pay these bills? That would be a miraculous work that I would love to see you do. But God doesn't often work that way, does He? He primarily works in providential ways where He uses our own uh, work, our own effort to get us out of the trouble that we've gotten ourselves into. God often works in ordinary ways, but even in those ordinary ways, we should not say, hey, this is all because of me. Because I've worked so hard, I've gotten to this position. Because God is ultimately at work even when, we, when He uses ordinary means in our lives. We should recognize that God is faithful to His promises. That God is there. And uh, we should trust Him for it. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we pray that You'd help us to follow You, to trust You even when it doesn't make sense. Help us to recognize that You are in control and that You are in every aspect of our lives. That You are working for our good, for those of us who are believers. We pray that You'd help us to not boast in our own circumstances or the position that You've put us in, but help us to, to boast only in the, the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus saved us not because of anything that we had done, but because of His mercy. And we pray that You'd help us to live our lives in response to Your great work on our behalf and help us to turn to You and trust You in every area, giving You the praise and the glory afterwards, just as Joshua did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.